What we focused on was the ideas that were present in cities about what a city ought to be and how life ought to be in cities. And we found that the modern city was built on a set of ideas, not just technologies, uh, that expressed the way people wanted things to be or thought things were, and that these ideas were fundamental to both the design of city space, the design of city life, how we use the space, and really important as well in the spreading of cities. So what we looked at was, are the ideas that are embedded in climate change innovations that cities are pursuing, are those ideas different from the ideas that help build the modern city? And we found the answer was, yes, they're radically different. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or their urban resilience project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U, capital R, capital P. Our guest today is Peter Plastrick. Peter is the co-founder and vice president of the Innovation Network for Communities. Along with his co-author, John Cleveland, he was a founding consultant to the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance and helped develop its strategic plan and innovation fund. He also consulted closely with the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, and managed USDN's Innovation Fund. Peter has been the lead author or co-author on multiple reports and books about cities, networks, and climate change. His most recent work, which is the subject of our podcast today, was published by Island Press and co-authored with John Cleveland. It is Life After Carbon, The Next Global Transformation of Cities. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. So Peter, tell us a little bit about how cities have transformed historically and, and what this next transformation of cities is, according to your book. Well, Mike, we all know that the cities that we live in today are not the same kinds of cities as the cities that were established 6,000 years ago for the first time in the Middle East, or the cities that existed in medieval times, or even in the time before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, these were all cities, but clearly cities evolve and change. And, and it's not just that they get bigger or more complicated, they change in fundamental ways. And so we got very interested in whether or not the way cities are dealing with climate change today starts to evolve cities in yet a new way. Is this part of a uh, change in urban life that is not just, oh, we're driving electric cars today instead of gas cars, but something more fundamental than that. And so what we did for research was we went back and asked the question, how do the cities that we currently live in, how did that happen? When was the last great transformation of cities? And the answer seems to be it started around 1800 uh, with the Industrial Revolution. So there are two things that happened since around 1800 that historically suggest the kind of transformation that we're now talking about in the 21st century. First of all, cities became a fixture of global life. Before 1800, uh, the demographers tell us uh, maybe 30 million people worldwide lived in cities, about 3% of the population. 
Well, today it's more like 3 billion people and it's 50% of the population. So clearly the city form of living has spread across the globe in the last couple of hundred years. And then secondly, all of the cities that we, we have today are what we call modern cities. They have modern systems, they have modern technologies, they have modern ideas. And that was not true before 1800. There was a change in the nature of cities and a change in the dominance of cities as the human habitat that's occurred in the last 200 years. So we went to look at that. One of the fun pieces of research that we did was uh, we studied London. London before the Industrial Revolution, that's where the Industrial Revolution started. But if you look at London in the early 1700s, 40 or 50 years after much of the medieval city burned down, you find a city, it's a bustling, energetic city with lots of people and lots of infrastructure, but it doesn't look anything like the modern city that we know today. The systems are not there. Uh, there's no real serious water systems. The buildings fall down all the time. There's very few buildings more than three, four, five stories high. The transportation system is driven either on uh, animal power or human power. And if you went back to that time, you'd say, well, it's a city, but it doesn't look really like a modern city. It doesn't feel like a modern city. What typically gets explained as the driver of change in cities, this evolution that I'm talking about, is technology. Oh, the steam engine came along and that made trains possible and boats possible in a new way. And then it made factories possible. And then electricity came along and that made uh, light bulbs everywhere possible. And then automobiles came along and that transformed cities. And it's true that those kinds of technologies, and especially the technologies of the Industrial Revolution, have had that kind of effect on cities. But what we focused on was the ideas that were present in cities about what a city ought to be and how life ought to be in cities. And we found that the modern city was built on a set of ideas, not just technologies, that expressed the way people wanted things to be or thought things were, and that these ideas were fundamental to both the design of city space, the design of city life, how we use the space, and really important as well in the spreading of cities. So what we looked at was, are the ideas that are embedded in climate change innovations that cities are pursuing, are those ideas different from the ideas that helped build the modern city? And we found the answer was, yes, they're radically different. And when they are applied in the 21st century, they create a new kind of city. They push a new evolution forward in city life and in city space. That's how we came to the conclusion that there was a book here to write. Okay, fantastic. So, And you looked at, in your book, you looked at 25 cities that you call climate innovation lab cities. Can you... Kind of speak to that. Why is that a formal designation or was that just said that you guys defined it as that? And, and why do you why did you use that title? Well, it's not a formal designation, although maybe it should be. We, we invented that title for a couple of reasons. We started working with what we call leading edge cities, cities that were deeply committed and acting on climate change, maybe five or six years ago. And we're talking about cities around the world, uh, not just North American cities. So these are cities where the leadership of the cities, and it's the elected leadership, but it's also the civic leadership. It's the business leadership. It's community activists. It's the professions. The leadership of the cities have said any of a number of things. Uh, a, we have a moral responsibility 
to deal with climate change. Cities produce most of the greenhouse gas emissions emitted in the world. We have to do something about that. We can't just leave this to someone else. This is our problem, not just someone else's problem. So some people thought that there was a moral obligation to act. Others thought that there was a practical obligation to act. We need to defend our city against the possible ravages of climate change. When a cloudburst descends on Copenhagen in, I think, 2011, and literally drowns parts of the city, the city leaders don't say, oh, well, that probably isn't going to happen again. They say, never again. We have to act and act now. Our systems can't handle that. So an innovation lab city, as, as we've defined it, is a place where the city's leadership has decided that decarbonizing as rapidly and as much as possible and building the city's resilience to climate changes is an imperative, is a paramount priority, not just another thing that ought to get done at some point. So a city like that has a couple of ways it could go. Uh, many cities have made commitments, pledges, but don't follow up strongly. Many other cities do a little of this and a little of that. That's fine. But an innovation city of the kind we're talking about, San Francisco, New York, Copenhagen, Singapore, uh, Stockholm, Melbourne, Sydney, a city like that makes not just a commitment, but a commitment to radical innovation as rapidly as possible for years, for decades, to deal with these issues. So it has multiple generations of leaders that push on this kind of priority. It experiments all the time in multiple systems, in the waste system, in the water system, in the energy system, in their buildings. They're constantly doing new things, trying out new things, and they're usually doing it with a deep reliance on data, management performance, and working at the system level. They're not just trying to change the way one building does something. They're trying to change the way all buildings do something. So when we looked at these cities, we thought, well, these cities have turned themselves into climate innovation laboratories. And we don't mean that there's a building someplace which is doing experiments or that they're running hackathons every night. What we mean is that the ethic of acting on climate has permeated the city's being is part of the culture of the city, is part of the way we do things here, and is not going away anytime soon. It's not a fad. It's not a one-off. It's a deep commitment to reinventing the city for the climate era. There aren't a lot of cities that are at this stage, but there's probably 40 or 50 around the world. And, and we had the good fortune of having uh, worked with, worked in, and having good relationships with about 25 of them, which we then um, really tapped to tell the stories, provide the examples, and to build the framework for our book. So part of the, one of the ideas in the book is that there are these four kind of transformational ideas that you see arising out of these cities. But before we get to that, and I, I want to spend some time talking about that, but before we get to that, just a quick question. Did you, did you take any look at, or do you have any sense of how these innovative cities, and you mentioned some cities like New York and and San Francisco, how those cities are doing economically compared to other cities? Did you have the opportunity to look at that? Are these cities thriving more economically, or do you have any sense of that compared to cities that aren't doing the same kind of radical innovation? The general answer is yes, they're thriving. The claim that they make based on the data is that 
even as they have been cutting the emissions from their cities, the greenhouse gas emissions, their population has been growing and their economies have been growing. And so they argue that they have uncoupled economic prosperity from the use of fossil fuels. Cities over time go up and down economically. So for example, just pulling from the 25 that we looked at, Copenhagen, Melbourne, New York City are all cities that in the second half of the 20th century were in terrible shape and were being abandoned by people, were in deep fiscal crisis, were losing a lot of their business sectors. And yet now, you can barely remember that that's the kind of condition that they were in. They're thriving and they're doing very well. So there are cycles of this, but almost all of the cities that, that we're working with would be described as generally as winners, both in the usual economic sense, and this relates to one of the ideas that we're going to talk about, and also in the sense of winners in the new post-carbon green economies. So in general, most people would say these cities are doing very well. When you talk to them about this question, just to some extent that people have their fingers crossed, they don't do well just on their own steam. They need national economy. They need the global economy to be functioning well as also. But these are healthy cities uh, by and large, and these are cities that are, are really quite productive economically. Yeah, it would seem that makes sense to me that innovation kind of breeds innovation, right? So that innovations you're making in one area have significant impacts kind of across these areas. So let's just dive into the four transformational ideas. So there's these four transformational ideas that you suggest are changing the city's relationship to the economy, resources, nature, and the future. So let's start with the carbon-free advantage. What does that mean? And can you give us an example of, of a city that is taking advantage of that? So carbon-free advantage in its broadest sense means decarbonizing your, your city economy. That can come in many shapes. You can be pushing renewable energy, both by uh, supporting private property owners who want to put up solar power collectors, uh, as well as pushing the municipal utility or the private utility that, you're, you know, that provides electricity to increase its portion of renewable energy. Most of this is about the energy system that, that cities depend on. And so you have cities now that have been extremely aggressive about moving themselves, their own consumption of energy, further and faster into renewables. And there's lots of reasons for that. But what's interesting to us about this is that this feeds the innovation capacity of a city. The point at which a city is becoming greener and more renewable in its energy systems creates all kinds of conditions for increased innovation in cities. And particularly, and, and this is an example I'll give you, particularly attracting to the city and keeping in the city young talented employees and entrepreneurs who want to be a part of a carbon-free economy, who see real economic and social value in generating the renewable energy economy of the future. And there's trillions of dollars available as the opportunity for uh, growing the clean energy sector. I mean, that's been documented and it's already true. The sales of renewable energy worldwide are not peanuts anymore. So a city that has committed itself to decarbonization and understands 
that decarbonization is not just a case of what the energy system is producing, but is an opportunity for innovation in the city and for attracting talent and for building businesses that can sell innovative products and services to the world. A city like that is a driver of the economy of the world, not just at the receiving end of whatever corporations and other kinds of uh, players and markets want to do in the economy. I'll give you two examples. Copenhagen has really turned itself into a local engine for business development in the renewable energy economy. Denmark as a whole, and Copenhagen in particular, support companies that are a huge player in offshore wind power and are located in the city or located in the country and have become a very large part of the exports of that country in just the last 20 years. And that's growing. Those companies are now selling into the US. They're selling into China, which for a long time had really not been active in the offshore wind markets. So Copenhagen saw that as a business opportunity for the city. Let's make sure that companies and entrepreneurs that want to get into clean, renewable energy have opportunities to use our city as a seedbed, as a test ground, as a beta site, and to be located here so that when they export, the economic benefits of that come to Copenhagen. So that's one kind of example. A different example, although they're pursuing some of the same things as Copenhagen, would be Vancouver. Vancouver, a number of years ago, committed itself to being the greenest city on the planet. A number of cities have committed themselves in that way. And, and, and ultimately, this is about what you really do, not just, the brand, not just the label that you put on it. But Vancouver has understood that it's not just a case of being green. It's a case of the brand of greenness having real value in the marketplace and real value, as I said earlier, in attracting and keeping young talented entrepreneurs and employees. So a number of years ago, Vancouver hired an outside company to do a brand study, to study the degree to which Vancouver's brand as an environmentally friendly, carbon uh, decarbonizing and green city was both regarded as better than that of other comparative cities and a plus for its economy. And that study showed that that was absolutely the case. The green branding of that city, which has to obviously have the evidence behind it, but the green branding of that city is a big deal as a part of building Vancouver's economic future. And it's independent of whether Canada is a green and renewable energy country or not. It's the city itself that is perceived by its residents, as well as by outsiders, and especially by business investors, as being at the leading edge of what's coming economically. So carbon-free advantage gives cities that get it and that move on it a real economic advantage as we move toward a post-carbon renewable energy economy. So there's three other transformational ideas that you lay out in your book, uh, efficient abundance, nature's benefits and adaptive futures. And for the sake of time in the podcast, why don't we just grab one of those that you want to grab onto and explain what it means. And then folks can, um, they can buy your book and read the the rest, but um, efficient abundance, nature's benefits and adaptive futures. Let's take nature's benefits. Uh, It's one of the more visible changes. And and I think it's it's an easy one to understand. 
So in the 1800s and the 1900s, one of the ideas that helped build a modern city was that we could engineer anything and everything. This was not an entirely new idea, but the intensity of the commitment to engineering and the application of engineering to practically everything in the cityscape was new. What it also meant was really we can control nature. The engineering can tell nature what to do based on what we want it to do. So there was an underlying idea which got married with technological, scientific and technological developments and helped build these massive concrete, steel and other kinds of materials based cities that were engineered, structurally engineered. And some of the engineering feats are just stunning. We watch uh, impossible engineering shows on television and it's, it's really quite amazing what the engineers can do. The great symbol of the triumph of engineering over nature was, was the Eiffel Tower in Paris in the late 1800s. So that idea of engineering everything is being thrown out now by cities that are pursuing decarbonization as well as resilience building, climate resilience building, because it doesn't actually work for them. So we've taken the idea that is replacing the engineer everything idea, and we've called it nature's benefits. The story that we tell in the book is from Melbourne, and it's a story of the greening of Melbourne after a, uh, an extensive drought had led the city to uh, stop watering many of the old trees that had been planted 100 years earlier uh, in the city and that were part of the city's identity, the way people thought about our city. So many of these trees were starting to die either because of the drought or because the irrigation of city lands uh, had, had been uh, compromised. And this raised a question in the city about where are we going? What are we doing here? Why is this okay? Five, six years later, that city has committed itself to an urban canopy. It's committed itself to green infrastructure, parklands and uh, river banks, green infrastructure that can soak up water and that can filter dirty water and turn it into clean water that can be put back into the ground. It's committed to a strategy for maintaining and uh, preserving the ecosystem that is uh, driven by the Yarra River, the watershed, it's completely transformed its thinking about the green and blue environment within which the city exists. And part of the reason for that is because those kinds of developments allow the city to address some of the most perilous parts of climate change, uh, the increased heat that is produced in cities because of the warming of the atmosphere but also the heat island effect of cities in which the surfaces, the concrete surfaces, et cetera, the road surfaces absorb heat and then release it and make the city hotter than the surrounding areas. These things have to be defended against. And tree canopies is one way of reducing the increase in heat in your city, keeping the city more comfortable, and in fact, keeping the city's temperatures from becoming potentially hazardous to human health. So there's a climate change reason to worry about this. Similarly, the use of green infrastructure is a way of soaking up the 
extreme rainfall that increasingly is happening now in storms and hurricanes, soaking it up so that it doesn't just overwhelm your sewer systems, your drainage system, and doing it at far less cost because you can engineer the grounds and the parkland and the recreation lands so that it's not going to cost nearly as much to build as systems of pipes and tunnels, et cetera. So here's a city that has moved toward green infrastructure for climate change reasons, but it's also seeing that there are other benefits for the city. The air is cleaner. That's a huge benefit. And it's one that in most cities around the world, citizens really care about. There's more green space and parkland so that there's more places for people to be active and mobile. That's better for public health. There's a variety of these kinds of what are typically called co-benefits that are being generated because you're letting nature do some of the work, not just engineering everything with concrete. That's why we called it nature's benefits. This is spreading throughout the world now. And there are some cities like Rotterdam that are real leaders in using nature, living with nature, working with nature rather than simply attempting to dominate nature and to control nature. That's a radically different idea, and it's reshaping the way cities look. So, Peter, your book is fascinating, and I think this is such an important topic. We could talk for a very long time, but we're, we're running a little short on time. So I'd like to roll from that nature's benefits into kind of my next question. One of the things that I see happening kind of related to nature's benefits is an increasing discussion of like urban farming, food production actually in cities. And I want to roll that into the a larger question of we have a world in which the urban areas seem to be thriving. If you look at the United States, a major portion of the GDP of the country is coming from urban areas. Urban areas are seeing population growth. Rural areas are seeing population decline. And it's transforming our economy, but it's also kind of transforming our politics, right? So you've got this kind of rural-suburban divide with urban areas that are doing economically well in a globalized economy. And you've got these rural areas that are no in a in a world where we are less natural resource dependent for economic activity, those areas are not doing so well. And there's an economic and political consequence of that. Where do you see that going? Where do you see how does this blossoming of cities, this innovation that's occurring in cities and transformation of cities, how does that bleed out into the rest of the country? And how do we deal with these kind of urban rural divides going forward? It's a great question, Mike. The urban-rural divide has been with us for a long time. It's an economic divide, and and I think you're right. I think, in a sense, it's getting, quote, worse, because innovation, which is the game, the economic game that cities play so well, innovation is just increasingly crucial to economic productivity and, and economic growth. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. And historically, cities have taken advantage of rural areas. They've either ignored them not worried about them, or they've exploited them. Uh, We want your resources. We want your smartest people. We want to dump our stuff out there someplace. We want to uh, take your natural resources and use them for ourselves and deplete yours. So it's not hard to think of this as partly an attitude and partly an economic reality that, that has grown up over hundreds of years. My own view is that, and I won't talk so much about the politics as much as the economics of this, My own view is that cities need to have a change in their own attitude about rural areas. They need to shift from um, a, uh, we don't care about them, or 
we care about them, but only to the extent that we can get something from them. To a understanding that city life is interdependent with rural life, not in every aspect necessarily, but in, in key aspects and critical aspects. And that the interdependence goes both ways. It's not a one-way street. And the cities need to pay attention to that and act in ways that both respect the interdependence and reward the interdependence. If, if you're dependent on something else, you want to make sure it's still around and you want to make sure it's still available. And so I want to give you a, a small example of what I'll call an emerging interdependence that we see in cities that's actually a result of their work on climate change. In San Francisco, in Boulder, Colorado, and in some European cities that we've worked with, they've come to understand that the food waste that they produce in the city, and they produce an incredible amount of food waste, can be turned into compost that can then be sent out to agricultural lands around the cities and added to the soil in ways that build the soil so that it's more productive and help to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So it has a decarbonizing factor. There have been experiments in uh, Marin County in San Francisco and in Boulder um, in creating this circular economy, as it's called, so that food waste equals the next generation of food that's being produced. And the interdependence of the urban and the rural areas is clear. The rural area needs the compost to do what it wants to do. The city needs some place to put its food waste and the ability to put it in, in, turn it into compost, into a productive asset that creates value for farmers who then use it to grow food. And actually, when we were in San Francisco, we were drinking Chardonnay that had been produced locally out of land that had been composted with the city of San Francisco's food waste. That's a virtuous cycle that has an economics underneath it. Collecting food waste costs money. Turning it into compost costs money. Selling it to farm, getting it out to the farms costs money. But it creates value for farmers who then sell their products back into the cities. So you can see an interdependent cycle there. Now, there's not a lot of that going on yet. But given that it also has impact on the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, it has a new kind of value that 20 or 30 years ago, nobody would have thought about. Can we convert that into economic value that is very good for the rural resident and very good for the urban resident, even as they are depending on each other to create all of that value? I suspect there's a lot more of that going to be happening or could be happening. Great food for thought. Peter, thank you so much for the book. Uh, give it a plug again. Life After Carbon, The Next Global Transformation of Cities. It's available at, at Island Press. It's also, I believe, available on Amazon. And thank you for your work. I, I think that this you said you're going to avoid the political part of it. I think that we can't avoid that anymore. I think that, you know, 18% of the population of the United States controls 50% of the United States Senate. And that is the urban rural um, synergies are great, but you're not going to have much synergy between San Francisco and North Dakota and South Dakota and Idaho. And it's going to be a real obstacle to kind of the political will that we need to transform our economy and get to a, a carbon-free economy, and it's going to be a big problem. 
right? So we're going to really, we need great people like you and other folks to really think through how do we create more synergies? How do we create more um, benefit for those areas to the things that also will benefit the urban areas? But again, we don't have enough time to talk about that. So I'm not really sure why I brought it up, but thank you for your time. And thank you for a great book. And thanks for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today. My pleasure. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.